Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Are y'all alive this morning? Good. So glad, so thrilled for the opportunity to continue in our series today um, called People of the Fine Print. If you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, if you would put your hand in the air, one of our leaders would love to serve you right quick. And uh, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 4, or you can also open to Hebrews chapter 10, whichever you prefer. Uh, And those will also be on the message card in front of you. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. I noticed just a few moments ago the streaming live audience seems to be much, much larger today. And so thank you so much for following along with us. And I pray that uh, God ministers to you where you're at. I want to let you know, tonight at 5 p.m., if you're watching this streaming live, you can share this. This gathering, uh, specifically for an online audience, is geared at DP Live every Sunday at 5 p.m. And uh, you, can, you have a whole day, if this message blesses you, and uh, to be able to share with those around you uh, to engage God's Word. Uh, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to begin in just a few moments. Pastor Chad opened us up last week talking about Uh, the people of the fine print. And it was a message that set up the entire series of how we as a church want to come around those lesser known figures, characters in the New Testament and look at how God used their faithfulness, their obedience to really, really bring incredible impact in the kingdom of God. And uh, today I want to speak to us a message that I'm entitling the soul's EpiPen. The soul's EpiPen. And and before we jump into today's message, I would like to do something that we don't often do, but I think was appropriate to do. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read two passages in our reading, in our hearing. Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, and we will read Hebrews 10, verse 22 through 25. Acts chapter 4, the text reads, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite. He was a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is a fascinating character. He goes from being called a simple servant in Acts 4 to becoming an apostle by the end of Acts 16 and 17. How does this happen in a person's life? How does this happen? The Bible said his name was Barnabas, called son of encouragement. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews addressing those Jewish believers who have accepted Christ are now facing very contested space for their allegiance to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that brings faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly So the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, capital D, day of the Lord, approaching. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the opportunity we have today to hear your word, 
to experience your word, to declare your word, and to live your word. And I pray, God, that you, by your spirit, would minister to our hearts and lives. I pray, O oh God, for the ministry of your spirit to have liberty today in this room and those that are listening by podcast or streaming today, and that, God, your, your glory would be the cry of our hearts, the renown of our souls, your fame, and that, Jesus, today you would fashion us after yourself to make us people of encouragement. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you today about the power of encouragement. The power of encouragement. The importance of letting a cry for encouragement come out of our church. And not just the way we treat one another in the body of Christ, but the way we move throughout our city the way we move throughout our jobs and the times we live in. So today what I want to do is I just want to focus in on one little section of our text. That one little section is verse 25 of our text in Hebrews 10, where the text says, let us consider how to spur one another on, watch this, towards love and good deeds. It's both and, not either or. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Speaking to first. Uh, first century Jewish believers. But all the more gathering together and spurring one another to love and good deeds as you see the day approaching. As I've been meeting with people the last few months, now that our COVID-19 is a reality in our world, regardless of where you stand on understanding it or believing about it, as I have been meeting with people over the last few months, there's one theme that I sense happening across people I meet, and it is this. People are discouraged. People are discouraged. They're discouraged by what's happening around us with, say, with, with racial injustice. They're discouraged about police brutality. They're discouraged about their own personal journeys with God. They're discouraged about the inability to meet with other people. They're discouraged about schools opening, schools not opening. They're discouraged about schools partially opening, partially closing. They're discouraged about schools making a decision and then succumbing the next day. They're discouraged about a narrative that's one thing Friday morning and a different narrative Friday evening. They're discouraged about uh, all of these different things in our culture and all of the confusion, church, in our society With all of it, it feels like there is nothing to anchor ourselves to. And so as a result, what happens is people feel adrift, a sea of criticism and uncertainty. And they hop on social media and the sea of criticism and uncertainty only gets more raging. This is not just happening in our city, in our country. This is definitely happening in our church. And this is happening in our city. Did you know in the city of Woodstock, Cherokee County, almost 50% of the requests that have come to authorities in the last 60 days are around issues of mental health, people dealing with trauma, people who need counseling, people who, know, who are dealing with chronic anxiety, overwhelming panic attacks. There's major need. So it's safe to say that we, on this August day, if we could get to the bottom of our hearts, many of us would be honest with ourselves to say we feel a deep sense of discouragement. A huge part of this is because we are isolated from one another. We're isolated from other human beings. Scientists, smart scientists. <laughs> it seems like you need to qualify that, right? Scientists, hopefully with no agenda other than to help the human race, tell us in order to experience the emotional health and connection that you must have as a human being, you must have 8 to 12 proper 
platonic physical touches per day. As a human being, you must have 8 to 12 platonic, good, healthy touches each and every day of your life. Yet for some folks, it has been months, some folks five, six months since they have felt a deep sense of connection. This past week in southern France, a young lady did something remarkable. Actions speak louder than words. And in a world and a culture that is so full of fear of COVID-19, she had a brilliant idea. I'm going to go stand on the street. I'm going to put a blindfold on. And I'm going to tell any and everybody that walks down this street, they're able and free to come up and give a hug. I watched this. I was literally weeping. I won't show you the whole clip. How in the world does something this simple cause a man like me to weep? Watch this quick video, what she did, South France. People need touch. People need embrace. On top of our interstates and complexities, we are also living at a moment in history where particularly, particularly and acutely, it is a culture of criticism, it is a culture of cynicism, and it is a culture of attack. And so what happens as we grow up in America is we don't develop the communication patterns and responses where we, don't, where we know how to build one another up. It seems like our world is intent on tearing one another down. Our world is intent on eating one another alive. This is how David Murray, one of my favorite psychologists, Christian psychologists, talked about the way we've been formed by American society. He says we've been coerced into criticizing one another. Let's read his words. He said, praising one another, powerful text, does not come easily to human nature. We like to receive praise, but we're not to give it. Criticizing comes much easier because we feel more comfortable looking down on people. Praising involves looking up in admiration, and our necks and egos tend to crack, and they ache when we attempt it. Affirmation is also discouraged by powerful societal trends, cynicism, distrust, suspicion, negativity, envy, political strife, and bad news at home and abroad, all combine to chill our hearts and shrink our souls. What haunting words. Chilled hearts, shrunken souls. And it's just terrible, y'all, when the critical same spirit of the world seeps into the way we relate to one another in the church. In fact, one of the marks of false teachers, the mark of false religion in Jude 16 is this. These are grumblers, complainers. The people that are false teachers are complainers. They're grumblers. Watch this. They're finding fault. The Amplified Version says this. Those who often find fault walking according to their own lust. And so often, church, the church is just as guilty of throwing each other under the bus as the world is. We turn our backs on one another and we criticize one another when we are simply just all trying to do our best to walk with God and navigate these complex times. Larry Crabb, a great, great psychologist, he comments on where the church is one of the only places in all of society where we seem to criticize one another like this. He said the world doesn't do this. It's so contrary, by the way, to the ways of Jesus. This is what Larry Crabb said. He said, I've never heard a father call out to his son during the final stretch of the race. You look tired, son. Why don't you quit? You're in the back third of the field anyways. Maybe running in your sport, son. Yet I've ever heard a Christian say to a young man after he taught his first class at church, when is the regular teacher coming back? We eat each other alive, Christians. 
We tear one another down like it's our hobby. We eat one another alive. We destroy one another with our words. The nuances of the way we talk to each other. We are are guilty of tearing people down, being critical against one another, and discouraging one another just like the world does. I'll never forget, I was uh, 27 years of age, and I was pastoring in Cleveland, Tennessee. I was over a student ministry at the time, and in our city of 100,000 people, there were only three main high schools. Now, the third Sunday of every September, third Tuesday of every September was See You at the Poll Day, or Wednesday, I should say. And so I thought I was going to get up early in the morning and go visit some of my kids at Bradley Center High School, hop on 75, get up to Cleveland High School. Then I was going to go up to Walker Valley High School and see all three of students that I had leading prayer movements and groups at the school. So I get to Bradley, finish, hurry up to Cleveland, finish, and I get up to Walker Valley. It's a school where I was a chaplain. And, and there at Walker Valley, you have the front of the school and you have a, a half wraparound like this where people would come and drop off their kids. And in the middle of that wraparound, that half moon was a flagpole. And I got there that day and I was late and hundreds of students were already gathered with their backs to the school looking at the flagpole and they're praying. And I was proud as pie. Some of our own students had a microphone and were leading in worship and praying. And I really wasn't giving a thought to God, though. It wasn't like I was in some spiritual trance at this time. And they said, hey, before we end, we're going to all gather around the flagpole and face back to the school and pray for our school. Well, kids had started arriving at school at this time, and they were getting off the bus, and they were a little bit hesitant to go into the school because they were curious of what was happening. And they would watch what was happening in the prayer, and they would make their way into the school. They all gathered around the flagpole and looked at the school, and I noticed a young man got off of the bus, and he, he sheepishly made his way over to the front of the school. And instead of going in like everybody else, he leaned his shoulder up against the, the brick wall, and he put his head down. He was the only one that this whole group of hundreds of students were now looking at at the school. And I looked over him to my right, and the Spirit of the Lord immediately said to me, Craig, go tell that young man what I tell you to say. And so I said, okay, and I started walking instantly. As I was walking, I said, God, what do you want me to tell him? I'm I'm almost there. What do you want me to tell him? And as I was getting closer to him, he had his head down, and the Lord told him, told me, he said, I want you to tell him that Jesus is his heavenly father. He is the everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. I want you to tell him that. And I tapped him on the shoulder, and he looked up with me sheepishly again, his chin, was down. His countenance was down. And I said, hey man, what's your name? He said, my name is Kevin. I said, Kevin what? He said, Kevin Ledford. I said, Kevin, my name is Craig. I said, I know you don't know me from Adam. And I don't know where you stand with relationship to a God who created all of this. But I want to tell you, I serve a God. His name is Jesus Christ. I was standing in that grass a few moments ago and my Jesus told me to come talk to you and tell you that Jesus Christ is your everlasting father. At that moment, something happened that has never happened to me in all of ministry. And Certainly hasn't happened since that moment. I've had people cry when I've shared a word. He dropped to his knees, sobbing uncontrollably. He placed his head into my stomach, and I just allowed the weeping to continue. All the students are watching this at one point, and a few minutes later, he finally stands up, and, he, and I tell him the gospel. Do you know the gospel? He says, no, I lead him to Jesus, but I, you know, man of great faith, I honestly believe, well, it's a prayer. I'm going to pray with this guy. He doesn't have enough support structure. And we're never going to see this fruitfulness grow in his life. It's just a one-time event, right? I'm a man of great faith. Y'all never done that when you witnessed to somebody? Okay, cool, cool. All right, great. And so I said, Kevin, what's going on? He said, my dad left us almost 10 years ago. And before he left us, he brought me into his room and he berated me and tore me down and said, I do not have what it takes to really be a powerful young man. 
And he said, it just crushed me. And then this is what he said. He said, for 10 years, I've shown up to school every day and my goal has been to prove to my family that I have what it takes. And then he said words that just chilled me. He said, words, man, the power of words. What a tragedy. A good man, this is a good man. He had shown up at school every day, but the force that drove him were the words of criticism an accusation that had wounded his spirit as a young boy. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, that's why the enemy wounds us in infancy. Because if he can wound us in infancy, he doesn't have to deal with us in maturity. So the words hit the hardest the younger we are. That Tuesday, I led a Bible study on school campus and he called me on Monday night. He said, Craig, would you mind meeting me in the media center? I would love to get a Bible and just start learning the Bible. I said, buddy, I do a Bible study, but I'll cut that thing short, okay? And I'll be there. What time do you want to be there? 7.15, media center. I get with the boys, the, the coaches that day. I lead the Bible study, say, guys, I got to leave early today. I walk into the media center and Kevin Ledford's not just there. Kevin Ledford has brought three of his friends who don't know Jesus as well. And for the next semester, I lead them in Bible study every Tuesday morning. Why? To reveal Reverse the damage that accusing uh, condemnatory words do in a human soul. Words, man. Words. That's why Proverbs 18.21 says this. The power of life and death is in the tongue. The tongue has the power. And that's why we, listen to me, as a church have to be so committed to building a culture of encouragement and doing what the passage says. What is it? We have to encourage one another. Now, this brings us back to the context of the passage. This is in Hebrews chapter 10. You know the context of Hebrews. These are Jewish believers who have made a commitment to Jesus. They're beginning now to experience resistance. They have left and forsaken Judaism to follow the way, way being capitalized. Christianity was called the way before it was Christianity. And so now these people are trying to find allegiance to the way. And they're getting all kinds of backlash, all kinds of resistance and persecution. This persecution has become very real. Now the Jewish believers, the Hebrew believers are having their homes burned. Their own children are being persecuted and killed. And now they're living in very contested space for their devotion, for their allegiance and their practice in terms of how they live out their faith. So the writer of Hebrews wants to come alongside the readers and say, Jesus in every way possible, is a better and fuller revelation of the God of the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to see and understand that adherence and obedience to the law, Jesus is better than that. Jesus is so much better. So Hebrews is an attempt, listen to me, Hebrews is an exhortation. Let me just go ahead and make this statement. You could call the whole book a book of encouragement or exhortation for those believers struggling with discouragement. And the writer wants them to press into Jesus and to take hold of God and to realize the possibility they have with Jesus and to go all in in their discipleship and allegiance to him. So that's why you see now in verse 25, he said, encouraging one another and all of the more as you see the day approaching. Now I want to take a moment for our time together this morning to unpack in this particular verse what it meant to encourage. And then I'm going to end today with three specific exhortations from this passage that I believe are so relevant to our time today. Now that word encouragement, everybody say encouragement. That Greek word, you'll see it on the card in front of you. The word most often translated as encouragement in the New Testament is the word parakalein. Parakalein. That is a compound word. Para means alongside of. Kaleo, kalein is the aorist tense. Kaleo means to call. 
So what does it mean to encourage? To call so when people come alongside of us during difficult times to give us renewed courage, to give us a renewed spirit, to give us a renewed hope, that's what it means to biblically encourage one another. The word used in the Greek Greco-Roman world, uh, this is how the word was used. It was used of speeches of, watch this, leaders and speeches of soldiers who urged one another. It was the word encouragement or an exhortation to send faithful and yet fearful and timid and hesitant soldiers courageously into the battle. Encouragement biblically is come alongside like Barnabas did the disciples, like Barnabas did Paul. He came alongside of a person and calling them up into the fullness of what God has and reminding them and stirring them and giving them the courage to continue on to do what God has called them to do. That's what it means to encourage. It's interesting because this Greek word encourage, it has the Greek preposition in, E-N. That means in, I-N, on, O-N, or among. It's to take somebody with little courage and put it in them. To encourage someone is to, is to stick courage around them. To build scrabble words of courage around the words of their life. To push on to their life a vision of courage so that they can respond to the challenges that they are facing in life. Now you say, Craig, why is that so important? Man, I feel this in my soul today. This is so important. And the reason it's so important is that we take a strong, and when I say strong, I mean a proactive stance right now in today's world as a church. We take a strong posture of encouragement to commit in our hearts to say we will be an encouraging people is because all encouragement that we give to one another is ultimately rooted in the nature of God. Let me explain. God is not just holy, though he's holy. God is not just loving, though he's loving. God is not just just, though he's just. God is not just good, though he's good. God is the source of all encouragement. In the scriptures, we find that every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, explicitly encourage us in our faith. Let me hit each member. God the Father. Look at the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God the Father. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, watch this, and the God of all comfort, watch this, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received. Everybody say comfort. That Greek word comfort in the Greek is the same word as encourage. Same word English we translate it different. It means to come alongside of, parakaleo. God is committed in our distress. Come on, isn't this good news? He is committed when his children are in distress. He is committed when his children are in pain to come alongside of us, to call out to us so we can get through the periods of heartache and pain in our life. We see the same thing about the Son, Jesus. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we saw the Father. Let's look at the Son. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that's what we call an explicit preposition, a preposition or emphatic pronoun. In other words, he's saying not just Jesus, but Jesus himself. Watch this. And God our Father, who loved us and by his grace, oh, this is good news, church, has given us eternal, not temporary encouragement, not fleeting encouragement. Jesus, the Son, has given us eternal encouragement and good hope. He loved us. What a prayer. And in his grace, he gives us eternal encouragement. And the promise is this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself give us the eternal encouragement to you and to me. 
And then in John 14, 15, and 16, we read the accounts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is literally called the comforter. He's called the encourager. You know the two names Jesus gave the Spirit? Advocate and comforter. He must have known that our lives would be filled of accusation and pain. Jesus must have known our lives would be filled of wrong words and distress. Or he wouldn't send a helper who is an advocate and a comforter. A comforter. John 14, 26. But the advocate, Jesus speaking, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Listen, church, when we live and encourage people, we live out the ministry of the Trinity. We live out the ministry of the Trinity. God the Father encourages. Jesus the Son encourages. God the Holy Spirit encourages. And listen to me. We need to see. Can we just see today that our sanctification and part of our spiritual maturity, part of our growth in holiness is that we grow in encouragement and we encourage others the way that God encourages us. And I want to take it a step further today. I'm feeling a little bold. Are you with me today? Let me take it a step further and say, a constant spirit of criticism is actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. Why? Because it means we're not taking on the heart and the nature of our God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I ask it like this. If God is the one that's enthroned upon my praises, then who is enthroned upon my complaining? A constant state of criticism and spirit of criticism is a sign of deep spiritual immaturity. Now, the reason, again, why it's so explicit to have a spirit of encouragement in our church is because all of the world's vision of community is expression, not encouragement. Can I just juxtapose two things for a moment? Think about this. The world looks at community like expression. The church should look at community like encouragement. Here's what I mean. We live in a time in history. I don't know if it's, all, if it's honestly happened like this. We live in a time of history where people come into rooms and they come into churches and they emotionally vomit everything on whoever happens to be there and then they walk out, and that's their vision of church. Their vision of community is that I'm going to jump onto a community to tell that community what I feel. My vision of community, even in church shopping, is that I'm going to find a community that I can emotionally vomit on, and then I'm going to turn out of that room and walk out. The church exists for me and to share my thoughts and my opinions, and then to leave. But to encourage, which is the Bible's view of community, is to actually really consider the other person and their needs. I don't think about my needs anymore. I think about their needs. I don't encourage myself by trying to encourage myself. I encourage myself by considering my neighbor's needs. Notice what the text says. The text very clearly, powerfully says it. This is, this is how Larry Crabb puts it. I love it. He says, without a solid foundation of commitment to restraining oneself in the interest of another's welfare, sharing feelings amounts to nothing more than falsely, falsely courageous self-centeredness. Just as physical nudity without marital commitment leads to immorality, so personal vulnerability and nudity without, watch this, commitment to another church, to another person's welfare, leads eventually to that fractured relationship. At best, an artificial oneness results, which will only be temporary. 
Let me put it in layman's terms. Someone comes into the church, emotionally vomits on you. You feel disproportionately connected, but you don't have an ongoing commitment, so the relationship is fractured. So this is so much different than than what it means to consider someone else's need, to, 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 to strain and restrain making it about you and to come alongside them and lift them up. And this is, by the way, why most of the exhortations and encouragements in the New Testament, they're pushing us in our speech and our actions to consider others, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Watch the text. Don't let any unwholesome come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. Watch this. According to their needs. You don't build them up according to the need you propose that they want or they have. You build them up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who talk on their Facebook. No, that it may benefit. You say things to people that it might benefit you. No, no. I don't know how much to say that. You, as a believer, you share words that it benefits the one that listens. It doesn't benefit you. It benefits the one that hears. I encourage based upon their needs, not what I think their needs are, not what I suppose their needs to be, but what their needs are. Not for the benefit of those who speak, but those who listen. Have you ever been around one of those people who always has a way of bringing the topic back to themselves? And have you ever been around someone who always seems to listen with this level of intensity and thoughtfulness and then they make it all about you? You know the gift and beauty of what it means to be feel, to, 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 feels like to be seen, to be valued, to be heard. And then have someone, listen, skillfully, because it takes skill, skillfully build you up to the exact thing you need at that moment. Those, my friend, are two very fundamentally different experiences. Colossians 4 and 6, this is what the text says. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Watch this, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Leave that text up. It did not say that you may know how to answer every question. You are not answering a question on your Facebook feed. You are answering a person. You're not answering a political issue on your Facebook feed. You are answering a person that you're talking to. You're not answering a question at your workplace. You're answering a person. You are to dictate your response to a person, not to an idea, not to a reality, not to a thought, not to a motif, not to a theme. You are answering people. As believers, you are listening to their backstory. They're listening to their words, the real cry of their heart, and you are speaking in such a way that grace is imparted. Grace finds a a, a place in their life. And what happens? Your conversation is seasoned with salt so that what? They might find life. Church, there is so much power in encouragement. It has such a massive effect on us. Now, I hope I'm not revealing too much, but in my marriage... Y'all, I am so prone to manipulation through encouragement. Now, my wife doesn't take advantage of it like she should probably with me, but I am, I am prone and susceptible to encouragement. Meredith can almost get me to do anything in the world if she'll just put the phrase, I believe in you, Craig, in front of it. I mean, I waken out of a stupor. Okay? It used to be getting all kinds of late night cravings during the pregnancy, right? It's like 1130 at night. I'm like waking from, Craig, I believe in you. And I'm, I'm, next thing you know, I'm in my PJs and McDonald's getting Big Macs, you know, at 1145 at night. She used to eat Publix donuts when she had our 10-year-old, man. When she was in utero with that one, and she loved some Publix donuts, right? Um, a, a couple of months back, it was me climbing on the roof. We got a pretty high pitch. And she's like, Craig, I believe you can do it. Next thing you know, 
I'm out there on the roof, you know, getting leaves out of the gutter. Here's the problem. There's been a generational transfer. We have an eight-year-old girl. She's turning eight this Wednesday, and she's learned about her dad. So the other day, we're on vacation, and I don't want to swim. I want to read a book. I'm not interested in the sun. I'm translucent, okay? I'm not interested in hanging out at the beach or the pool. I'll do it for my family, but that's not vacation for me, okay? And so she's out there, and she says to me, Dad, she just jumps over to me with those eyes and sits down in my chair, and she says, I believe in you, Dad. You can jump into the pool. Next thing you know, here I am in the pool. I mean, it's become a generational transfer. I am, I am so susceptible to encouragement. Maybe you have a personality like me. And I want to say, listen to me, not on a surface level, but on a deep, deep level. Encouragement has the power to restore our souls. I read a book this week called Spiritual Adrenaline. I've had it around for weeks. I've began reading it. And this author of Spiritual Adrenaline believed in many ways what adrenaline does to the body, encouragement does to the soul. He pointed out in this book how seemingly ordinary people could do extraordinary things and they're filled with adrenaline. On the way to church this morning, I was telling Knox about some of these examples. Several examples. 2006, a man by the name of Tim Boyle. He was a man in Arizona. He lifted an entire Chevy Camaro off the ground of a bleeding and screaming cyclist on the side of the road. Lauren Karnacki, a 20-year-old, 110 pounds, Virginia last year lifted a BMW 525 off of her dad when he was working on the BMW and the jacks moved and the car fell on him. And this 20-year-old woman, 110 pounds, simply crossfitted the BMW 525. (laughs) She crossfitted that thing. Why? Because the adrenal glands, which are here, release epinephrine through the body. What happens? 2006, Lydia Anguillo. I showed the picture to my son this morning. She's in northern Quebec. She's a mama that's 48 years old. Her son and the friend are on the ice, ice skating. A hungry polar bear, 700 pounds, comes out to eat the kids, to attack the kids. She said, not today, Satan bear. And she runs out there, and she starts punching the polar bear. She starts fighting him on the nose. He hits her with one swipe, gets on top of her. She starts bicycling, kicking, kicking. They don't even have to get a gun and the 700-pound polar bear leaves the family alone. What's happening? It's the way God made us. It is an adrenaline rush where hormones, epinephrine, what's in EpiPens, what's in AviQs, epinephrine literally surges out of the adrenal glands into our blood. A physiologist I read this week says this, the release of adrenaline is rapid, seemingly instantaneous, so we can respond instantly in the fight-or-flight situation. He said adrenaline boosts the breathing in the heart muscles and, and the heart rate floods our muscles with extra oxygenated blood for more first forceful exertions. He said the, the nervous system opens up. The nerves running from the spine recruit, recruit more motor units and harnessing more of the muscle strength. He said the more motor units that are acquired, the more exertion can happen, says Lynch. The product is what he calls hysterical strength. Can I just propose to us this morning what adrenaline does to, uh, what adrenaline is able to do chemically and physically to the body, encouragement is able to do emotionally and psychologically to the soul. <laughs> encouragement can literally transform a person's spirit and wise people know how to tap into it. Wise people know how to partner with God the Spirit. In fact, other physiologists have even done studies in children's energy. Knox thought this was fascinating. They took young children, they put energy, um, energy uh, monitors in their hands. And here's what they did. They took depleted kids. You want to know the first week of school? Teachers, listen up. Listen up. 
They took tired children that were given a word of praise or commendation. And when they did, that child, the moment it hit the eardrum and registered in the brain, there was a physical release of energy within the body of that kid, even though they were completely, totally physically depleted. Just one word of encouragement from a mentor or from a parent changed the level of energy physically in the kid's body. And the same thing happens when they were criticized. Their bodies experience an even further decline in energy levels. And I just want to say this to us. So many people in our culture right now are so discouraged. They have shrapnel in their soul because of constant criticism. They have shrapnel in their soul because of the media's blast. There is so much disappointment. Sometimes we're disappointed in ourselves and we are our own harshest critics. Other times it's people around us. Sometimes it's our parents. Sometimes we are walking around full of words and wounds with the shrapnel of the world around us. I saw a video a few weeks ago of a father who gives us a picture of Parenting 101. There is nothing. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful videos. Watch what he does with his son as his son is trying to inwardly turn his shame and guilt because he's not able to do what his father's asked him to do. Watch this, Parenting 101. No, we're working on coordination. That's why it's hard. Let's go. What you crying for? Talk to me. Why not? Look at me, son. Why not? Because I keep at the door over again. Over and over again doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just means you have to practice, son. You haven't done this before. Remember what I said about Einstein? He's on record as being one of the smartest men ever to exist. He says, it's not that I'm smarter than anyone. It's just that I stick with problems longer. You understand? All right, get your hands up. Take your time. Slow your thoughts down. All right? One target at a time. Zeus. Step back. One, there you go. Zeus. Step back. Go. Zeus. Parenting 101 right there. Looking at that kid in the eyes and saying, listen, son, gather your thoughts. Breathe deeply. My God, what would our culture look like if we had parents like this? What would happen to our culture if we had believers full of the Spirit of God infiltrating our society with their Christ-like thinking and presence? Oh, we would change overnight. Maybe you're in this room and you're just discouraged because the future feels uncertain. Because the future is Maybe fearful. Here's what I know. When we make a commitment to one another, to encourage one another, when we have that exhortation, we have no idea how God's going to take our words and shape a life. We have no idea how we might literally be coming to somebody who looks like they're going to die and almost like an EpiPen, like an EpiPen, which is adrenaline in a pen. It's called epinephrine in a pen. And when someone has an allergic action, reaction and they're about to die, we put this shot of epinephrine in them and when they do, it can save their life. And in the same way, you're walking in your culture each and every day and there are people who have, whose spirits have a toxic reaction and allergy that they have received constant criticism from anyone that's good and godly or anyone that matters anything in their life and we don't know how one single word of encouragement may fill their life and fill their their soul in such a way that they're able to survive this season and not give into it we know that across the nation right now the levels of abuse and addiction and violence are increasing way faster than COVID ever dreamed of being possible as discouragement becomes an agent 
and a force that we have to fight with in America right now. Let me tell you, the second leading cause of death between 10 and 34-year-olds is suicide. The only thing higher is accidental injury. The suicide rate for kids from 10 to 14 years old tripled in the last 90 days. 10 to 14. The suicide rate in 15 to 19-year-olds increased by 76% in the last year. In the last 90 days, there's a 28% increase in substance abuse in teenagers under the age of 20. Who's saying these things to our school officials? Who's communicating these things? Who's fighting for these things? We are called to be a church and create an alternative community where we build one another up where we speak life and we look at people in the eyes and where we speak hope and we speak possibility. That's what we're called to do. We don't criticize, we raise up, we build up, and we do this. And when we do this, we have no idea how God will use our words. You know, what's amazing to me is when you think about God putting God's word in our mouth. I think about this often. You guys know I'm a, I'm a science nerd. I was just studying our Milky Way in the last few weeks. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the the Milky Way that we live in, our galaxy, looks a lot like a pancake, a waffle, or a donut. Your choice. I picked donuts today. And it's got this bulge in the middle. How do you like that? And it's amazing when you think about the Milky Way galaxy, okay? This is not to scale, okay? If this is our galaxy, watch this. This is fascinating. Fascinating. There's not even a chance you could walk up on stage right now and put a dot small enough to the human eye to place our solar system, which is our sun and all of our planets. Okay, You could not get a dot small enough on this donut to show even our solar system because you know how big this is? Let me, let me explain. A light year. You know what a light year is? It's the time it takes for light to travel a year. You know how fast light travels? 186,000 miles per second. Think about that. You go on 186,000 miles in one second. That's fast, y'all. Okay? How much ground you going to cover 186,000 miles in one second? Now, what is a light year? It's just how far you can go in one second, 186,000 miles, right? No. It's how far you go when you're on that light ray going 186,000 miles per second, not for a second, but for an entire year. You know how big the Milky Way galaxy is? Not our solar system. The Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years. So to get from this edge to that edge takes 100,000 years going 186,000 miles per second. So imagine how fast you would pass Earth you would just start your journey and you would pass earth in a fraction of a millisecond. You wouldn't even be able to see earth. It would go by so fast. Why? Because earth is only a couple thousand diameters big. It's so small. Do you know how many of these are out there in the known world, the known universe? 350 billion galaxies. And God says in his word, we are buried in one little planet inside one of those 350 billion. And God says, I've set my glory above the heavens. And God says to DP today, are you fascinated by what I made? Wait till you see me. You fascinated what I made with my words? Yo, it boggles my mind. The God who created all of this 
it blows me away because people come in here to church and they think they're big. Are you kidding me? And they sit there with their hands in their pocket, realizing they're in the presence of the one who spoke this into existence. And when God puts God's word in your mouth, you speak with the same power that created the cosmos. You think your words matter? The tongue has the power of life and death. Life and death. What has God called you to speak into people around you? What has He called you? S. Truett Cathy, who encouraged us all with the gift of Chick-fil-A. Right, Zay? Here's what he said. Watch this. He said, how do you know or how can you identify someone who needs encouragement? He said, simple. That person's breathing. Because we all need encouragement. Now, I don't know about you, but when I tended to get to the end of the epistles of the Apostle Paul, I just skipped to the next one, right? Do you ever, with all salutations, y'all don't ever do that? Okay, cool. Y'all read it and just hear, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Excellent. So when I get to the end, because I'm an American, I'm looking for a promise to hang on to. By God, I want to get to the next epistle. But you know what Paul does? He doesn't do that. You know how Paul ends every epistle? Encouraging believers. Look at Romans 16. Anybody get excited? My female should get real excited. He mentions over 15 women. Listen to what the Apostle Paul does, Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. Notice he recognizes her personal walk. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. He recognizes their personal risk. Look at verse 6. He goes on, and what does he say, verse 6? He says, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Look at verse 10. Greet Apelles. Notice that. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity has stood fast. I'm recognizing that I'm going to encourage the personally, the brothers and sisters in Christ in your church. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, the woman who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Verse 16, he goes on and says what? Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ send greetings. Paul made sure that in every epistle he encouraged those in the work of the gospel. And we need to be a church that births sons and daughters of encouragement. That's what it means to be Barnabas. I want to close, Casey, come on, by telling you a story that illustrates, and I want you to lean in, that literally illustrates the supernatural, I think almost impossible power of encouragement. It's one of my favorite Dietrich Bonhoeffer stories of all time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died. He died in 1944. He was hanged by the Nazi regime. He was in America. He had a chance to leave New York and go back and help his own kinfolk. He went, or, or, or the Jews that were being persecuted by the Germans, right, the Nazis. And he was a fabulous theologian. His book, Life Together, is probably the best book ever on church relationship, small group, fellowship. I mean, it's fascinating. The cost of discipleship changed my life when I read it at 19 years old. I mean, it's, my wife was getting a little scared at the time. I thought I was going to sell my truck. I thought I was going to sell everything. She, I, mean, I went through a season. I, did, I literally thought I was going to live on the street because that book so convicted me. And he died. He's a fascinating character. He was imprisoned and at the end of his life, he got engaged to a young man named Maria. Most people don't know this about Dietrich. When Maria was, when he was in prison, he wrote Maria a poem to her and it was published by Maria after he died. The poem was called Next Year, 1945. 
And what he wanted to do is he wanted to write to his fiance because he wanted to marry her. And he wanted to share with her the importance of having hope. He said that in spite of the darkness and danger, we can trust in God. Babe, trust in God. He wrote a poem with seven stanzas. I just want to read two of them. Two of them read as follows. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain? At that command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. With all the powers of good aid and attend us, boldly we'll face the future, be it what may. At even and at morn, God will befriend us. And oh, most surely on each New Year's Day. See, Bonhoeffer, leave it up there, was facing deep uncertainty. And he wanted to send words of hope and encouragement to his fiance that things would be all right. Well, you know the tragedy. He finished penning this, and in 31, 32 days, he would be killed. And he never lived to see the new year. Years later in America, there was a beautiful author by the name Joseph Bailey, B-A-Y-L-Y. He went through a series of unspeakable tragedy. You want to know a person who went through a tragedy? He had three kids. He had a five-year-old die of leukemia. The very next year, he had an 18-old, 18-day-old infant die. Then the very next year, his 18-year-old son got engaged and died in a sledding accident. And he lost all three kids in 24 months. Needless to say, he stopped writing. He had nothing to say. The narrative of his life had been dashed. He would not contribute. And the fiance of the son who died in the sledding accident, the 18-year-old son that died, she found Bonhoeffer's poem. And it was so much comfort to her that she gave it to Joseph Bailey and it ministered to him. Well, God used that poem that we read as a seed to get him to write again. And he wrote a book called From the Hearse. And he wrote another book on heaven. The book on heaven was so important to him because his three sons had died and gone on to heaven in front of him. Point from Bonhoeffer so ministered to him, he said, I've got it included in my book on heaven. So he included Bonhoeffer's poem in his book. Now think about that. Bonhoeffer in prisons, writing a poem to his fiancée, had no idea that his words of encouragement would be used to encourage a man in another nation and enable him to include it in his book. But listen, church, that's not the point of the story. Twelve years later, 30 years after Bonhoeffer's dead, Joseph Bailey, the guy who lost three kids, gets a letter from a pastor in Boston, and the letter included the following details. Dear Joseph Bailey, I'm a hospital chaplain who visits people dying of cancer, and I was making my rounds this last month, and I came across a woman in the final stages of her cancer. I visited her several times and built a friendship with her and sought to encourage her. Joseph, I was so deeply moved by your book on heaven that I gave it to her. This woman stayed up all night the night I gave it to her and read your book. She said it fundamentally resurrected new hope within her and brought her comfort weeks before she died. The woman's name in that hospital bed? Maria Bonhoeffer's fiance from 30 years prior. Bonhoeffer's fiance moved to America when he died. She had failed marriage after failed marriage, two of them, in fact. She was very successful in her career, but she lost two 
husbands. And at 57 years old, with her body scrawny and dying on a hospital bed, a pastor walked into her room and handed her a book on heaven. And in this book, she read once again the words of her fiancé from 31 years earlier about having hope for the future. And at the end of her life, the promise came full circle and touched her spirit and prepared her for eternity. The power of words, man. The power of words. The power of encouragement. The power of letting God's word breathe life into America. The power of coming alongside struggling people in our jobs and urging them is the power of the gospel for the human heart. So what I want us to do today is different. Normally we ask you to sing in response to the Lord. That's only the first step I'm asking you to do this week. Next week, I'm preaching part two of this message, by the way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you within the next few days as a way of response to take 15 minutes. It can be done at coffee. It can be done at dinner. It can be done for a specific meeting. And I want you to sit around the table with those you love. And I want you to have a time of affirmation and speak words of life to those folks. If you are a dad, you look at your kids in the face over the next few days. And you speak to them about what encourages you about their life. You speak to them the strength of God you see in them. Uh, spouses, that feels a little hokey. Who cares? Marriage is hard anyways. If you don't do this, you have to go to counseling. That's more hokey than, that feels way more hokey than just looking at each other in the face. Right? Who cares if it feels hokey? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it to try to impress upon us and make it some legalistic thing. I'm just saying, each of us have a time of affirmation this week where we speak life into hearts. If you're married, just speak, inject words into it. If you've got kids, say, kids, here's what I see of you. Here's where I see the Spirit of God operating in your life. And listen to me, church, look at me. As a result, while the rest of the world gets more and more violent and discouraging, God can establish Dwelling Place Church as a counter-cultural movement of disciples know how to speak life into one another. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.